Welcome to Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the page, on the screen, on the street, or in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, and I'll be your host for as long as it takes. I haven't done a show in a couple months. I almost forgot how the, the opening went. So, yeah, I didn't do the show for a couple months. I apologize if anybody cares. I was uh, under deadline for the book I just turned in a couple weeks ago. Had to grind it out, but I'm happy to be back. Tonight, I'm going to uh, flip the script and have a talented friend of mine interview me about my latest Rick Cahill novel, Lost Tomorrows. His name is Jess Dodsett. He has over over 20 years of sports radio broadcasting experience, having hosted shows in the premium morning, which I listen to, and afternoon drive time slot for multiple San Diego and L.A. stations, as well as college football Sundays, which I also listen to when I was driving on the road. Heard nationally on Fox Sports Radio, Jeff developed and hosted Clinch Gear Radio for Sirius XM and the Armed Forces Radio Network. He's involved with numerous charities, absolutely, including the Alpha Project, Rancho Coastal Humane Society, and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. He's quite philanthropic. He's also the board. He's also on the board for the local chapter of USA Boxing. He lives in San Diego with his sons, Cade and Jack. Welcome, Jeff Dotsett. Hello, Matt. You know, I'm such a fan of yours going back, and uh, congratulations on Lost Tomorrows. It's been uh, really, really fun as both your friend and your fan uh, to watch this thing grow, to watch the Rick Cahill series grow, and it just feels like it gets better and better. So, yeah, we did this a year ago, and I had a blast, so I I sure appreciate you inviting me back. Um, I've said to you, and I, I appreciate the introduction, Having done 20 years of sports talk radio, I was lucky enough to speak with a bunch of different athletes or coaches or broadcasters. But for me, and you know this because we've been friends for a while, my favorite people to talk to are authors because of the creativity. So let me start. This this book is really fun because the first books took place in San Diego. But this book takes Rick back to Santa Barbara, where the backstory is. At what point, I I love the story story you talked uh, last week when we saw you at Warwick's bookstore in La Jolla. Can you share with the audience, when did you know that that this book, Lost Tomorrows, was going to move out of San Diego and take Rick back to Santa Barbara? That's a good question. That's an actual little twist on the question I thought you were going to ask me. I knew regarding the book itself, I knew once I was halfway through writing Yesterday's Echo, the first book, that I'd have to write this book at some time in the series because the death of Moira, I mean not Moira, Colleen, Rick's ex-wife, happens before the first book, Yesterday Echo, Yesterday's Echo, even starts. So it's the inciting incident for Rick's arc in this whole series, and um, I didn't know – I mean I knew I'd have to write at some point. I didn't really want to write it now. I just and I will get to your Santa Barbara part. I, I promise. I um, I had just written not a couple of years ago, Blood Truth, which was a story about Rick's uh, the truth about Rick's father, which was emotional for Rick. It was emotional for me. I just lost my father while I was writing it. Um, I didn't really want to do an emotional story at this point. And besides, I kind of I was sort of done with Colleen. I mean, for me, not for Rick, but for me, she'd served her purpose. She'd started this whole thing. Uh, the driving force behind Rick, his, his uh, quest for redemption. But after going through um, the what-ifs in my head, uh, which writers do when they don't know what they're going to write about, what if Rick does this and that, um, the, the idea of Rick going back to Santa Barbara was the thing that stuck. And uh, as much as I didn't want to write it, I had to. I was under, I was under um, 
contract and time was running out when I needed to get this book started. But once I started, I was really happy I started it. I wrote it rather because it is a story that's been inside me for all these years, um, seven years and six years, six books rather. And um, I knew getting it out was, you know, was cathartic maybe in some ways. I don't know. Um, But I really wanted to tell the story. I want to tell the story about Colleen, get a little bit more info on her and and Rick's relationship for my ongoing readers and for new readers, they didn't miss anything really. I mean, they missed a lot of the, of Rick's other adventures, but in regard to Colleen, they basically get enough to know what's going on. Now, Santa Barbara, I didn't really think about Santa Barbara when I was, um, you know, when I thought I'd have to write this book back when I was writing yesterday's echo seven, eight years ago, actually, I wrote that book a long time. So we can go back yeah. 17 years for that book. But anyway, um, and then once I decided that, you know, I'm going to solve this question. Rick definitely had to go up to uh, Santa Barbara, and um, which for me was different because I am used to driving around in San Diego and and uh, finding spots that uh, I can use in the book, and also spike some um, subplots, things like that. So it was difficult in that way. I went to school in Santa Barbara a thousand years ago. It's changed a bit since then. I've, I've visited it a few times over the years, but I went up and spent a couple long weekends there while I was writing the book. It help with places and things. Kind of help with vibe too. Um, but I really, it's it was um, it was definitely something different for me to not to be able to be in the city where I ride because if I just can't go out and drive the streets whenever I want to and get inspired and find new um, locations and things like that. So um, I knew, you know, once I saw it, decided on this book, what if Rick goes back to Santa Barbara and finds the truth? That that was basically in a car driving to L.A. Uh, after two months of not writing anything with 10 months to go to turn the book in. That's when I knew it was going to be in Santa Barbara. We, uh, we find out early in Chapter 1 that Rick is going back there because of a development with the person who really trained him when, when as you described it, as a young police officer, when he was a boot, it was Krista yep. Landingham. Uh, right. For people listening that haven't read it, describe the relationship uh, between Rick and Krista and what takes Rick back to Santa Barbara? Well, she, as you stated, she was his mentor. She was the, uh, his training officer when he was a boot a rookie on the Santa Barbara Police Department. But they also, after that, um, spent about a year together in a, in a car when he was, you know, they were partners. Obviously, she was a much senior partner. She's about seven or eight years older than Rick. They didn't, there was never any um, romantic inclinations uh, early when they were together, but. Um, Hints of that started to change uh, the year into their sharing a car together. and um, But mostly before that kind of took over, he saw her as a mentor. And um, I think it says in the book that she taught me, this is Rick, she taught me how to walk the edge without falling over, mm. being a cop and walk the edge. So, um, you know, there's always that dark side for Rick. And she, she sort of had a little bit of herself kind of breaking the rules type thing. But she was able to, you know, just stay inside the lines where, Rick, as we know, he colors outside the lines a lot. Well, in staying along those lines, Matt, if, if for those of us that have read every book, I think it's pretty safe to say the, the Cahill that we were introduced to in yesterday's Echo is much different than the Rick we catch up with in Lost Tomorrows. If we had the opportunity to talk to Krista and ask her, what do you think she would have thought of Rick back then, and what would she think of him today? And to extend it out, which version would she like better? That is a really good question. You must do this for a living. Um, <laughs> Once or twice. Yeah. I think that she – I don't think she 
would like the Rick now as much as she would have the one that she shared a car with. Because Does she take I, responsibility uh, for that, Matt? As somebody that was his mentor, do you think? Do you think she no. you think she would carry the burden, a little bit of burden of that? I don't think so because um you know, this it's now as the book this book opens, it's fourteen years after or thirteen years after he had any uh, any connection with her at all, any kind of uh phone conversation or anything. So no, I don't think I don't think she would. I think she's pretty practical and would see that, you know, this guy had well <laughs> Well, there is a way to get to that, but I'm not going to, I can't say it. No. Um, where she, where course, she might feel responsibility. Yeah. But uh, no, she would fix his responsibility. And, you know, the, the darkest point of his life um, changed him somewhat for the worse. And um, there's some great, there's some really good in Rick, um, but there's also a darkness that, that he uses to try to um, accomplish the good he thinks needs to be accomplished. But that's a dangerous way to live when you um, are taking, you know, the law into your own hands in many ways and thinking you're always doing right. The one thing we've liked as readers is the conflict between Rick and what had been the La Jolla PD in the early books. And now he goes to Santa Barbara and we find out, oh, isn't that interesting? It's not only La Jolla that doesn't like him, but the Santa Barbara PD is probably not throwing him a welcome back party. Who dislikes him more, La Jolla or Santa Barbara? Santa Barbara is La Jolla squared. Because not only did they yeah. think he was the guy who got away with murder, he'd also uh, tarnished their badge because he was a cop with them. He was mm. their brother, Blue. And he, um, they think he's guilty. They think he killed his wife all those years ago. And he did it as a cop. And so what could be worse? And then they couldn't solve the case. They couldn't bring him. What they you know they didn't right uh, righteously bring him to justice or they thought was the right would have been righteous so yeah they hit him even more and so he uh, of course goes up into that atmosphere because the reason he really goes is he feels he feels that um, he's down down at his nadir when this book opens because I mentioned that um, you know he's always living by his own code and he's starting to doubt his own sense of right and wrong so he's not taking he's taking cases only where there's no potential for him to get emotionally involved and or to hurt people emotionally and physically but of course that doesn't really work out in the case we see the small little case we see him take but um he when he finds out that she's dead and there's going to be a funeral the next day up in santa barbara and he's in san diego he's all he thinks well the right thing to do maybe is not go and so the people that that hate me i won't be infringing upon their grief even though even though I want to be there for her, and that's and ultimately, you know, in, in society, they, that is the right thing to do is to go and bury someone who's important to you. But uh, of course, he ends up going. But um, yeah, they hate him. And there's, of course, what, when you're at a cop funeral, um, there are a lot of there are cops from everywhere. There's a lot of cops there, and so of course, he has to walk into the into the church where there's just uh, you know probably 250 police officers in there. So you, that, you may uh, have answered this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, you may have just answered it here, but the one thing that I'm always fascinated by is the book is the books are told in in Rick's voice, so we know how Rick views himself, but we don't necessarily know how the other characters view him. We see it from his perspective, but it's not a narrator telling us the story. It's Rick telling us the story. So if we had the opportunity to ask other characters about how Rick perceives their vision of him, 
how accurate do you think he is in the way he perceives other people? I think he's I think he's fairly accurate, and he knows that he's not liked by a lot of people, and he he knows in many instances, even though he was accused wrongfully of of killing his wife, there's obviously reason that 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 brings on a lot of the wrath from um, police officials, but. Mm. He, with this manic need to find the truth and to try to redeem himself by every case he takes becomes, uh, you know, a case of the life of the lifetime where everything matters. So in getting to the truth, he often – and it's small things. Like he could potentially potentially get someone fired by getting information from them that they their boss wouldn't want them or their, you know, um, board of directors, what have you, would not want them to go out. And he feels badly about putting people in that position, but ultimately he he goes through with it anyway. So he knows he does he knows he does wrong, and he does feel badly about the, the things he does. He feels you know even well maybe people have died in the books, and maybe some of them he doesn't feel bad badly about. Um, but he does he does realize um, the damage it's doing to his soul. So I think he's pretty good about seeing that people, you know don't like him and sometimes for good reason but he's got this uh quest that in his mind supersedes all that he doesn't think those of us that he does right Uh, and and i'm going to get to something that the new york journal of books said about him because i found it fascinating and somebody who's read all the books it kind of when i read the view the review which was excellent they said something uh, but I'm, I'm going to save that for a second because we'll we'll get to the overall writing of the books. But in the story, with Rick going back to Santa Barbara where he hasn't been, he has to rely on another party. And I, I won't give many details because we don't we don't give things away. But right. there's there's another person who comes. Actually, there's two of them. Um, but the first one is kind of his sidekick slash partner in this and there's a natural tension between the two which i find as a reader incredibly enjoyable for you as the author when you're writing that dynamic of the partner slash sidekick even temporarily how much fun is it and how much of a challenge is it to find the balance between tension between two parties yet the ability to work together that's a really great question um, I, that's the funnest part. <laughs> Anytime there's conflict, right, it's got to be. I would imagine, right? But <clears throat> it has to be. It has to be conflict born from the situations, and it can't be. And that's something I really think about a lot. Is that you know, Rick doesn't seem to get along with anybody, and I have to. Make, it has to make sense. It can't just be conflict for conflict's sake. Although you do, I, I need to put conflict on every page. So, yeah, you have to find the right balance. Does this even make sense? You know. For Rick to be this much of a, of a jerk to this person, or for this person to take <laughs> immediate animus towards Rick when he hasn't really done anything yet. So this one, it's built in. But um, yeah, they, these two people did realize that they had to work together. They did realize they were going for a greater good. And the person Rick w- works with, I'll just say he's a former cop, um, now turned private eye. He's he's been a, basically a by the book cop, but he's also you know he's like uh, Harry Bosch. It's like you know everyone counts. So and plus this is a dead cop they're talking about. So he's got. To, he wants the truth, even if he has to work with Rick, who he really hates for a lot of reasons. He he hates for a lot of reasons, but he's professional and he puts Rick in his place a little bit. Um, he's a little maybe a little more snippy than he would be if he was just working with anybody else. But 
Um, he's professional about it, and the, the, the clues are what he wants to follow the clues. Rick follows clues, but Rick follows his gut. Gut first, <clears throat> clues, I mean, clues all rolled in. But um, So this guy's a bit of a um, governor on Rick's impulses. But, of course, when they're not working together, Rick just ever does whatever the hell he wants to. Um, but, yeah, that is, a, that, is a, that is a line to walk. It's not just like, well, why does everybody dislike this guy? So you have to make it in each scene or in a previous scene. You understand why in this scene you know, they act the way they do. It can't just be, you know, just to have tension. There has to be real tension. And that is something – I don't think about that much when I write, but it is something I, I try to keep in mind. Does this, does this tension realistic? Why would, why would Rick make such a decision? And, um, you know, once you figure that part out, you're okay. I think it's fun for a reader to be able to get in your mind and kind of go behind the curtain of what happens. As the story is being written and as you move from Chapter 1 to Chapter 10 and Chapter 20, where is the most inner debate that you deal with as the story develops? Is it in the beginning? Is it in the middle? Or is it as you are fast-tracking to the end? It's the middle. The middle is uh, often referred to by writers as the muddle. Um, it's all, it's the hardest part to write, I think, for anybody. I don't know anyone who's ever – any writer I know that's ever thought they like writing the middle. Um, because really, you know, if, if you were sitting next to somebody on a train or on a bus or something or maybe sitting at a bar, you could tell any of these stories in five minutes, right, because the – Right. This is the this is the inciting incident. This is a couple of things this guy had to go through, and that's the end right there. So you have to fill in you know another 150 pages, well 100 pages in the middle, um, and make it interesting. So I would yeah, the middle is the hardest part to write. The endings are endings are very hard. Um, you know I always revise. So when I, sometimes you'll write the beginning, you'll write an opening scene, and if it just gets you to where you need to go, then I you know I'm not going to perfect it until I do. Um, one of the like four or five revisions I do after I turn a book in. So, you know, you can roll with the, 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 end, the beginning kind of, uh, I don't think maybe it's different for other writers and it would seem uh, counterintuitive, but the beginnings are kind of the easiest part for me, really. You know, I mean, obviously just sitting there and staring at the keyboard, we don't have an idea is really hard, but once I get an idea and then I realize I'm going to put Rick under pressure, I'm going to put him in somewhere he doesn't want to be, but he has to, you know, he has to follow that quest. Then, I feel pretty good, and uh, it's in the middle when you've given them all these, um, you know, things to do, these twists and things like that. We have to make them, you know, have them make sense, not just be the twist for twist's sake. That's definitely the hardest part. But endings are tough too. But by the time I've pushed through, you know, getting to the end, I've probably been writing the book for seven or eight months, so I have a much better idea. Even though I, the endings generally, I generally know what the ending is when I start the book. But, you know, all the specifics, I have a much better idea um, by the time I get to the end. So it's not that hard to write. And, and, and one good thing about it is generally I'm behind. And so I'm really pushing hard and <laughs> writing a lot more hours. So I think the longer my butt's in the seat, the easier it is for me to write anything. Um, anyway, that's what I think. Matt, early on in the book, we meet Krista's sister, Leah. Yeah. And the relationship with Leah reminded me to things maybe we've seen in the past where it feels like Rick can't necessarily let his guard down uh, in these relationships. And I'm wondering for you as the writer, is there a little bit of fun when you write that part? Because knowing maybe you do, 
that there's a little sense of our frustration as a reader where you're like, Cahill, just let it go. It's cool. But there's that little bit of when you try to bring two magnets together and you feel like it's getting close and then they push north and south away from each other. When you're writing that element of the story, maybe the female lead with Cahill, is that something uh, kind of going back to a little bit of what we talked about with the sidekick? where it's fun because you want to bring the reader right there, but then there may be different things that can happen, little plot twists that don't necessarily always give the most satisfying ending. Yeah. Yeah. I get, uh, I'll have people that really like my books, but they'll say, you know, are you ever going to let this guy be happy? <laughs> um, and there's, there's some happiness in this story. Well, this, the Leah Rick dynamic there's a couple. There's extra things going on from his norm. I mean, generally, you know, he's had a not generally, but he's had a couple cases where he's um, at least emotionally fallen for the um, person who hired him. This is a woman who fi- hired him, rather. But for this one, he's back in Santa Barbara, where his, where his life turned to shit, um, where his wife, uh, you know, was killed. Her ghost is there, and beyond that, um, you know, Rick's trying to. Well, I can't get that too much into it, but beyond that, no. Rick. Rick is is uh, tr- investigating the death of his old partner and um, Leah's sister. So that's a you know Leah's pretty vulnerable at times because of, it's only been a uh, she's only his sister her sister's only been dead a week when um, the book opens when Rick goes to Santa Barbara. So um, you know he, I mean, I've tried to establish that Rick is a he, he's got a heart for sure, and so. He doesn't want to get, you know, emotionally involved when this person's already wrung out emotionally. But, you know, things happen. But, um, yeah, that, that again, that's a point of where you have to, you know, can he? Why is Rick so hard? Why can't he accept joy in his life? And that is, yeah. um, that is something that's, you know, I try to build in. I try to make it seem reasonable. And I have, I have an advantage because you are in his head. You can, you can see his messed up rational, rationalizations. I mean, people, some people get really upset with that. But uh, you you see him go through the paces of, of why he can't, um, you know, click with somebody. And and right now in Santa Barbara, he's up in Santa Barbara. Like I said, the ghost of Colleen is everywhere. It's a small little town. And um, there's that um, bumping up against him too. But, yeah, I mean, um, I got to keep him wanting. Yeah, but I like that. There is some – there is some – there is some – there is some – joy in this book i think maybe i don't know yeah yeah no and and we'll get to what i've said one of really fun the new york journal of books because there were a couple of things in there that i'm um, interested to get your thoughts on but the the thing that you read and you don't even have to crack a page of lost tomorrows if you've read any of the previous books or all of them as i have you know that rick trusts very few people why does he trust the reader why does he trust the reader? Um, probably because he's you're in his head. He's giving you the reasons why he's messed up. You can see sometimes where his decision making isn't very good. You, the reader, um, but if you've been if you've been in that head long enough, you understand why he's making the decision. But you, sometimes you wish he wouldn't. Um, he, uh, well, you know, I mean, he's got to trust the reader. I mean, I, although sometimes the reader doesn't necessarily trust him. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to ask as a follow up. Yeah, because, like I said, they may see where he's going down the wrong alley, and his um, 
preconceived notions and his damage will sometimes not allow him to see the mistakes he's about to make. And so I, I have to trust the author here has to trust that the reader understands and is willing to go on the journey with him, even with his sometimes um, bad decisions. That wasn't the, that's author intrusion there, but um, I guess Rick and I, when the books are being put together, are one and the same. But um, yeah, he's given you an inside look of his damage. So you know, if you don't like him, um, you're not going to stay very long. Outside of his dog, Midnight, what else brings him peace? Uh, God, peace. Probably, uh, probably arguing who's not with Moira, his sometimes sidekick, yeah. or he's really her sidekick. Uh, she's a PI, and she's not, she's only in a couple scenes in this book. Um, so the, the, uh, anyway, um, just it, when he's, when she takes him down a peg, it kind of, he's in the, it sparks his, uh, I don't know. It sparks his counter punching, and but it lets him know that someone cares about him because they have this kind of sis, big sister, little brother situation. Yeah. Although they're only a couple years apart, but it, it, you know, when she, of course, she gets very angry with him, legitimately angry with him. But when she's sparring with him, he feels like, yeah, there's someone here who cares about me, and they, they, <laughs> they're almost forced to care about me, like it would be a sibling, because she, Rick gets her into some puts her in some bad situations with his his um gut his gut decisions um and the fact that she stays around i think he's probably most comfortable except with when not with midnight is when he's with moira in a car or at a scene somewhere where there's maybe um surveilling someone and she's just kind of letting him have it i think i think he's so messed up he likes hey someone cares about it someone cares about me enough to give me a lot of shit yeah well, and using Moira, for me, she's one of my favorite characters, and I'm fascinated. How do you find the balance of when to bring in the secondary characters while not feeling like you're using them as a crutch? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, initially, when I when Moira, Moira was in the second book, Night Tremors, and it was a very contentious relationship <clears throat> immediately because – Someone let her go on a case that immediately fired Rick, and she thinks Rick had something to do with it, and he didn't. Yeah. And that that spung. They they had to work a couple things together, and there was um, I don't know. Maybe by the end there was a little bit of friendship. And Rick always respected respected her, but I don't know if she ever liked him in that book. But they ended up working a little bit together. And by the time I got to Blood Truth, I needed her in one scene early in the book, and it would make it made sense for her to be in the scene. It was a surveillance thing where he needed to have a woman. Uh, where he could take pictures and like he's taking pictures of her, but actually taking pictures of what's going on behind. <clears throat> so she said something in that scene, like the scene's almost over and they're going up some steps and she says something. And I thought, Holy shit, she's got to be in this book. I can't let her go now. And she became yeah. the conscience of the conscience of the book, the conscience of the series. So, um, but she's I, like, Rick needs her when he, um, some cases because she's smarter than him. She's more balanced than he is, and he realizes that. I've, I've said before that she's got four sides, and Rick has three sides, and so she mm. helps. Uh, she helps, uh, you know, maybe sand down that one really hard edge. So I, <clears throat> she, Moira in particular is there. Um, scenes it makes sense for Rick to have her there, and then because I I don't outline. I mean, sometimes other things spur from there, and that re- really happened in 
like I said, blood truth. <clears throat> in this book, his relationship with Leah went somewhere I never intended it to um, when I started writing the book. Um, so for me, I just sort of have to, this sounds kind of woo-woo-ish, but I have to let the characters talk a little bit. And, uh, of course, I'm writing them, but my subconscious is telling me what they really want to say. So, um, you know, sometimes you bring in a character that you're not really sure why, but they end up having great meaning for the book. And Leah was, was that way in this book, in Lost Tomorrows. She was a very important character and um, <clears throat> someone I grew to really like a lot. And she's a little bit of a balance to Rick, too. But she's very, you know, she's she's wounded right now, too. So you're seeing her you're seeing her at her worst, and you can see the goodness in her. And, of course, that appeals to Rick, goodness. You talk about magnets. That's kind of the opposite of how he feels in, about his gut sometimes. I know we're up against it, but i got a couple of quick ones I want to ask because yeah. I think uh, people like it, so hopefully we're not on a on a hard break here. But no, no, I mentioned okay. a couple of times the, the New York Journal of Books review, which was excellent. They called it uh, Lost Tomorrows. They said it's your best book, and I'm wondering how satisfying is that considering the work and the process that goes into each one of these? And along those same lines, I'll use a sports analogy. Andy Ruiz, back in June – came out of nowhere and he was this little short overweight guy from El Centro that knocked out the heavyweight champion of the world Anthony Joshua who was this Greek god physique wise and they recently had a rematch and Andy Ruiz instead of training bought cars and watches (laughs) and when he weighed in at 265 for his first fight he weighed in at 285 in the second fight because he had just been partying and celebrating instead of, try, instead of trying to get better. How do you avoid being the Andy Ruiz of writers after getting another excellent review this time for Lost Tomorrows? Well, I'm not sure because I'm weighing in about 275 right now. I'm not even, <laughs> not even at Christmas so. yet. Um, <laughs> Well, and I have to, uh, if you like, I will take that um, uh, New York Journal of Books out of the frame that I put on my wall because it's the best review I've ever gotten. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> and, and I'll say one quick thing about that, and I've had some couple reviews in this book that um, that have been really good. I mean, I've had a lot of good reviews in this book. I'm very happy about that. But sometimes people, yeah. the review, you can tell the reviewer understands exactly what you're trying to do, and that that is so fulfilling. Um, it really makes you feel good, and um, – the gentleman from New York, uh, New York Journal of Books, got it. Um, anyway, yeah, I do. I don't. I don't. I don't worry about uh, I, I, uh, resting on your laurels. No, because I have this internal, you know, freaking angst that I, mean, I feel like every book I turn in that it wasn't as good as the last book, and then then I, rev- you know, I get the notes back, I will revise a little bit, and I'll think, well, it's pretty good. And by the time that I um, I have by the time I'm about to go on tour and I've just turned in the next book, I think that the one I'm going out with is the best book I've ever written. I, I have a favorite in the series, and this is close, but um, Blood Truth's my favorite for some personal reasons. But um, yeah, the, when I read the book, okay, we, you and I have talked about this before. So when I'm writing a book and you laugh at me, I think it's pretty crappy. And I'm in a writer's <laughs> group and I'll bring in pages every week, and I'm sometimes I'm like, I'm embarrassed to bring in pages. And I'll think it's shitty, and, and there'll be revisions. I always revise what I wrote the day before as I go forward. But and when I'm I'm only bringing scenes to um, my writer's group, so I haven't read the whole thing. So when I'm done, that first draft, I have to read the whole thing. 
And then I always feel like, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And then I revise. I think, well, it's pretty good. You know, I got it better. And then by the time I turn in, I think, yeah, it's it, it, it reached a level that that I think I need to be writing at. I, I always I always feel there's um I could have done better, certainly with every book, and uh, especially when I have to read them. Um, but I do feel responsibility. I don't I don't wrestle my laurels a lot. I have a pretty messy um, writing process. Uh, and right now I feel guilty because I'm not, I'm basically not writing in December. Um, I have to figure out what to write next, but I am doing a bunch of marketing stuff, but, um, I do feel there's this unease. I mean, it's the holiday season. I should be having relaxed, right? But there's an unease in me because I'm not writing. So, um, I always feel that I should be doing something on the writing side and, uh, but I, I don't like, so for those reasons, I don't rest on my laurels. It's just, I couldn't. There's definitely the, the thought of I don't want to disappoint my my fans and my reviewers, and I don't want to disappoint myself either. So, yeah, um, I'm just wondering when I can feel happy about something. Because um, <laughs> this book well, really – right? You Cahill's really, like, yeah, welcome to my world. Right. There's a great – Go ahead. Yeah, there, there's a great line in this review that, that I love. Uh, when uh, again, I, I just I, I read this and you and I were talking about it the other day, and the reviewer Mike Ferris writes the following. He says Cahill is traded in running a restaurant for being a private investigator, albeit one with questionable ethics. And it's funny because as a reader, you look at that and you go, "Well, I don't know. Does he have questionable ethics?" So. Would you agree with that, or would you say for Rick it's more bend to don't, but don't break the rules when you're trying to find answers to solve a case? Don't you almost uh, have to have questionable ethics to be successful doing what he does? Well, this guy has to. Rick has to. Um, I know. I, I actually I agree with that, and I think that I think Rick, if he's you're looking at society's um, what society says says is ethical, he would definitely feel that he's not being ethical in some senses to his own go to his own goals and which he which he does think are um altruistic yeah um, he feels like well this is the way i have to go now now if he just spent more time with moira he might find out well you can get where you're going but maybe you don't do it that way um but yeah i i agree with my what mike said and he is quite he's definitely ethically questioned but to his own but he's but <laughs> I think readers accept it because they think he's trying to. He thinks he's trying to do the right thing, and they just love his resolve. I think, or they like his resolve. Yeah, sometimes when you're when you're trying to close and time is not necessarily on your side, you you may have to make some decisions that Rick does. This was a this is a tough one for you. Two quick ones, Matt. But. For this book right here, I feel like what I always say to somebody is start with yesterday's echo because I feel like if you start with yesterday's echo and then you work your way up with the different books that have been written, right, all the way through from Night Tremors and Dark Fishers, Blood Truth and uh, Wrong Light and here we are, I feel like you just get the full experience. You get the entire um, Rick Cahill experience, but as an author, you never want to turn down somebody who says, "Hey, I want to buy this one." How, right. When you look at Lost Tomorrows, can Lost Tomorrows be read as a standalone, or or 
is the better play to start with yesterday's echo and work your way up. Your timeline should follow Rick's timeline. Well, I can I can answer this I can answer this truthfully um, that yeah yet lost tomorrow's does work as a standalone um, and what I which is kind of ironic and I mean self enclosed it's self enclosed story which is kind of ironic because yeah. when I was writing the book when I decided this is the book I have to write even though I didn't want to write it when I decided I'm writing this damn book once I got into it I realized well the only way I can really tell this story is to think about my continuing readers and not worry about new readers I knew that I, I assumed mm-hmm. that was going to give me um i assumed i get a lot of flack for that i assumed that when the reviews would come out they weren't going to be that good um but as i was as i was writing i realized well i mean and the reason the reason i i would thought that way is not for the story itself like i said it is pretty um it's a self-contained story because continuing readers uh i'll just start with new readers they they basically learn the backstory which is before yesterday's echo anyway about what happened to colleen they don't know all the yep. trials and tribulations Rick's had going into that, but they do realize they're dealing with a damaged soul. And for for continuing readers, they learn a little bit more about the, the Colleen-Rick relationship. Um, but my concern was, will – I mean, I thought continuing readers, I'm writing it for them because they will understand the darkness inside this guy, what he's gone through, and why he makes some decisions he makes, and why he crosses the line. Um and I thought, well, this. I thought if you're meeting Rick for the first time, you may not like this guy, because <laughs> uh, I mean, he's never vindictive in any way. In any way, well, maybe right. not in this book, but he's he just does what he thinks is right, and he and he makes some bad decisions, or some questionable decisions. But I but I realized, you know, I just can't. I got to write the book the way I got to write it. And as we were stating before, ironically, it is. It's gotten the best reviews of any books I've ever ever written, and uh, which which tells me just write the damn book you think you need to, the way you need to write it. But I am always, I am. It is a series. It's not. It's a serialized series. So you you know each book each book has an impact on Rick as he goes along. So it is always a concern for me about um, without um, rehashing things and boring old readers, giving the new readers enough information so they'll understand where, where why Rick is where he is. And somehow it worked in this book because um, I've had a lot of people that have reviewed the book that have never read Rick before, and they they really liked him. I mean, they understood him, and they wanted to you know read other books. So um, somehow it, it worked out well, even though I was trying to. I wasn't even. I thought I was doing the opposite. <laughs> that says a lot. Well, it's it, yeah, it's been a blast for me to watch this, and when you look at the way. The review in New York Journal of Books ends, and I'll quote, uh, paraphrase it, I'll cut it down a little bit, but the, the end of paragraph says, Southern California has turned out its fair share of thriller superstars, such as Michael Conley, Robert Crace, T. Jefferson Parker, James Elroy, Raymond Chandler, and Ross McDonald. Matt Coyle is quickly writing himself onto that list. I know the impact that Conley, Crace, Parker have had on you, what Chandler's had on you. Matt, when you see that at the end of the review, that has got to be incredibly special, but congratulations. The book is a fantastic read, as all of them have been. I may be a little biased to wrong light, but what do I know? Lost Tomorrows is fantastic, and uh, one I highly recommend for anybody uh, that is doing holiday shopping, whether it's Christmas or any others that you celebrate. Uh, where are you heading next? Where can people see you? You got any signings coming up before the holidays? Yeah. 
I just did a few and I, I'm, it's, it's, um, a kind of, uh, bicameral, uh, signings. Cause I do, um, I don't know if that's the right term. I do some in December and then this time of year, booksellers don't want you in their store. They're trying to sell stuff. So then I do some more in uh, January, January 7th, I believe six or seventh, whatever Tuesday it is. I'll be at Broman's in Pasadena. Next I'll be in Chaucer's in Santa Barbara, which I've never spoke at before. Uh, and then I'm flying to Houston, uh, for murder by the book. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, murder by the book. And then on, uh, the next day I'm flying to Austin for book people, flying home to interview Lee Goldberg at mysterious galaxy. And then uh, I got a few uh, library gigs coming up, but I wanted to ask you, um, why don't you tell our listeners about your uh, podcast? I sure podcast. appreciate it. Let me ask this real quick. Uh, book catapult. You and I will be there. Oh, that's right. But I'm I forgot not- about that. Damn it. <laughs> You and I, uh, what's the date on that? Because uh, Book Catapult, a great independent bookstore in San Diego, something that you and I are really big fans of, and uh, they've been big fans of yours, and it gives us an opportunity to go down and just kind of hang out. And at that time, too, we we can probably, if you're in San Diego and you want to come to Book Catapult, with the book just having come out on the 3rd of December, Matt and I are a little bit more reluctant to go too deep into the onion for the storyline, but I always feel like Matt. Once the book's been out for a month, we can we can talk about plot twists and character twists and everything else. So it's a little bit different than what we did tonight. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll get a few layers of the onion deeper than we did tonight. Yeah, book pack catapult will be there uh, on the fifteenth. It's down in South Park in uh, San Diego. It's really a cool bookstore, cool area too. Uh, if you are a fan of sports, uh, my friend Dave Palais and I do a podcast. It's a whole lot of fun. Dave and I have done a show together uh, for 20 years, and what used to be just kind of a sports show has changed a lot, honestly, over the last 18 months as our families were impacted by suicide. Dave's young son, uh, 20 years old a year ago, went to take a Xanax. The The pill had been... Uh, laced with fentanyl that took Dave's young son, Jake, away at the age of 20. So what had always been kind of a, uh, just kind of a lighthearted sports show is about a lot of different things that you go through in life as parents and everything else. Uh, we're incredibly thrilled. We, as Matt said at the start, we had done 20 years of talk radio. We got out of traditional radio to do our own style of show. We've had more than 2 million downloads for our podcast, which is shocking to us that we would have two downloads, much less two million, but we're incredibly thrilled by it. Uh, We are a big fan of Matt and authors, so we talk all kinds of different things, and you can find us on Apple uh, Podcasts, you can find us on SoundCloud, or you can just find us on our uh, website, DaveAndJeffShow.com. Yeah, it's a great it's a great podcast, and there are heavy <laughs> topics, but there are also um, there's lightness and there is occasional swear word that comes out of your mouth. Uh, there might be, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I think anybody who's listened to mine will be incredibly shocked that we went 45 minutes, <laughs> and the guy who cussed on the podcast here tonight was you and not me. That's a that's, that's right. a new record for me. I'm incredibly thrilled. <laughs> well, it's my podcast. Darn it. All right, buddy. Well, I appreciate Rick, uh, you. Or, uh, Matt, congratulations. <laughs> Rick Cahill continues to be entertaining. I am a little disappointed. I'm concerned because as I checked in on you for the new book uh, that we will do this for in a year, I didn't hear nearly as much gruff in your voice as I've heard for the last three or four years. When I'm like, how's the book? I hate it. And then the book comes out, and I always love them. Your fans always love them. 
Uh, Lost Tomorrows is a great success. Congratulations. Thanks, buddy. Really appreciate it. Anytime. We'll do it again in a year. You bet. All right, folks, thanks for listening in uh, and sticking with me after being a, having a little bit of a hiatus, hiatus rather. Um, I'm going to have Naomi Hirohara, I've been trying to have, have on for a while. We've had some, um, both on each of our sides, uh, getting the right dates together. But she's going to be on the December, two weeks from tonight, December 27th. Actually, she's going to be on at noon on the 27th. But, of course, um, if you listen to it live, great. But if you don't, it's always available on uh, podcast. So thanks for listening. This broadcast is solely owned by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And happy holidays to everybody. And I hope you all have a Merry New Year or Happy New Year, rather.